This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Jane Stanford, she embarrasses the university a great deal because the university is trying to be a respectable new research university. And at the same time, the founder of the university and the person for all practical purposes in charge of his finances is consulting with mediums. She attracted a lot of mediums. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Stanford University's co-founder, Jane Stanford, was a mess. Her husband and beloved son were dead. Stanford's officials despised her. Jane abused her servants. And then she was murdered. Author and Stanford professor Dr. Richard White tells us about the wealthy eccentric's troubled legacy and her mysterious death One review that just popped out at me said simply that Jane Stanford was a mess. And that seems like a really apt way to start this conversation as the person that we're talking about. Let's start from her beginning, wherever you think it makes sense. Is it her as a child, how she grew up? She grew up in upstate New York. She was not um, born wealthy. She's from middle-class circumstances. She marries Leland Stanford Sr. And Leland Stanford Sr. is at the time a lawyer. He comes to California. He's in the gold rush. He's not successful in the gold rush. He's not successful at much of anything until he falls in with Collis P. Huntington. And Collis P. Huntington brings Leland Stanford along with him. And four shopkeepers become the associates. What they do is they have no money, so they're operating on borrowed money. I mean, in many ways, it's a Silicon Valley story. These guys don't have the money, but they are very good at getting subsidies and they are very good at getting investors initially. And so more and more often, this is a paper enterprise. They put very little money into it, but on paper, it becomes worth more and more. It's the Central Pacific Railroad. So it's always on the edge of breaking up and falling apart, but on paper, it's always worth a lot of money. The goal is is somebody else, if it collapses, will be left holding the bag, not these guys. So they begin to get a paper fortune, but it is a paper fortune. It's the kind of fortunes that we've seen all the time. They're very rich one day, the next day, the whole thing can collapse on them. So Leland and Jane meet. What was their dynamic as a couple when they first got together, maybe even before they had Leland Jr.? Leland is in California by himself for three years. So there's a three-year separation in their marriage. Then Jane comes out. Their dynamic is, you know, they're upstate New York, lower middle-class Protestants. They are not exciting people, but they are ambitious. Jane herself will become more and more of a feminist, but these are people who are full of contradictions. Jane Stanford is a feminist who wants 
women in the university. And by the end of her life, she's trying to purge women from the university. Hmm. Leland Stanford thinks of himself as a self-made man, but all his money comes from being able to get loans from the federal government and be able to cheat stockholders. So everything you look at with them, the way they make their money, their ideals, they're full of contradictions, um, which makes them really quite interesting people in some ways. So by this time, they're living in a mansion in um, Nob Hill. That's where Leland Stanford Jr. grows up. They have another house in Palo Alto. These are Gilded Age mansions, the kind of things that you'd see in New York City, the kinds of things you'd see in, in Rhode Island. They are ostentatious in their displays of wealth. They are clearly among the richest people in San Francisco, and they are also increasingly widely hated. Why? Just because of the amount of money that they're spreading around? Because this is, what, late 1800s at this point? It's the late 1800s. It's, they're hated largely because... Their wealth is seen as coming at the expense of California's growth, hmm. that they see as being exploiting California. Leland is seen as a monopolist along with his associates. And what's good for Leland Stanford is not necessarily good for California. So he becomes more and more a figure who is scorned, particularly by working class people. But at the same time, he corrupts San Francisco politics and he corrupts California politics. He becomes a political boss. He becomes... Uh, governor of California. So he's somebody who shows the power of money to corrupt. So late 1800s, is his main enterprise the Central Pacific Railroad at this point? He is the president of the Southern Pacific. He's a figurehead. And they're, they're, the same, they're the same railroad. The Southern Pacific owns the Central Pacific. So all of this becomes quite complicated because Carlos P. Huntington, who lives in New York, who's the money man, is the real figure behind it. But the figurehead is Leland Stanford. And Leland Stanford lives in California, lives in San Francisco, lives in the Knob Hill Mansion. So in the late 1800s, when Jane and Leland Jr. and Leland Sr. and Knob Hill, what is Jane doing? Is she a household manager or is she doing anything that's altruistic, any volunteering? Jane Stanford is busy being rich. Oh, spending money. Okay. <laughs> She's, she spends a lot of money and she dotes on her son. They treat their son more as a companion than as a child. Jane Stanford will take him to Europe. Jane Stanford during this time, it's, you know, it's hard to see. I don't want to psychoanalyze somebody who I haven't ever known personally and there's no record of, of what she was like. But I do know at this period, she becomes almost immobile. She seems like she would be depressed. She seems to be confined in a narrower and narrower life, and even as she becomes richer and richer. And much of her life is going to be lived vicariously through her son. She has huge ambitions through her son. He's a precocious child. He's a spoiled child. And he quite literally will get anything that he wants. So to understand Jane Stanford, you have to understand her devotion to Leland Stanford Jr. And that's what's going to make her so vulnerable when he dies. An only child, but more than just an only child. This is a child she's invested her whole life in. When does he die and how does he die at age 14? He dies of typhoid in the early 1880s in Florence. Oh. He dies with his parents. His father is sitting by the bedside. And they both have um, a nervous breakdown. Jane is going to have a nervous breakdown. Then Leland is going to have a nervous breakdown. And this is where it gets a little creepy. They can't bear to bury him. They carry his body with him first to Paris, 
then to New York City, uh. then all the way across the country. So there's going to be this these long trips with the dead Leland Jr. accompanying the parents on this long funeral trip, which will end up back at Palo Alto on the Palo Alto estate with the memorial service in San Francisco. So it's it's a long, very, very sad, and in some ways a little creepy story, even for the 19th century. So Leland Jr. has died in the early 1880s, and now Leland Sr. is sick? He's sick. He's a, he's a sick man. They go back to Europe. They go back even around the places where they'd been with Leland Jr. Now they go back on a trip where they visit places they'd known when he was alive. And meanwhile, Leland Sr. is getting sicker and sicker the whole time. Mm. And Leland Sr. had had a dream about Leland Jr. who had told him to found a university so that the children of California could get the same advantages that he had. And around this, they begin to decide that they're going to found Stanford University. At the same time, when they're back, in the United States, um, Ulysses S. Grant, who's now an ex-president and his wife, they're both spiritualists, they're consulting spiritualists in New York. The line between spiritualism and the Protestant ministry can be a thin one. They're considering ministers. And so while they're doing all of these things before Leland's death, they're preparing to found the university. And Leland Sr. will set this in motion, but he's the university has only been open about a year when he will die. Let me ask a very naive question. He's still rich on paper, right? How are we founding a university when there's this sort of house of cards where he has no actual money to build an institution, hire faculty? How was that even possible? You borrow it. Nope. <laughs> Welcome to the early 1900s, late 1800s. Essentially what Leland Stanford did was he took three estates and donated them to the university. One of them is going to be the estate in which it's founded. The problem with those estates is they have absolutely no income. As one of the early trustees said, all that he gave us was the taxes. So they owe taxes on these things, but they're not producing income. To produce the buildings, he goes into what's a slush fund from the Pacific Improvement Company, which is a slush fund of the associates where they drain money out of the Southern Pacific Railroad, and he borrows from that. And he uses that borrowed money to begin setting up the buildings and to build the faculty. So when David Starr Jordan, the first president, comes, he thinks he's getting this huge fortune, and he arrives there and he finds out he has borrowed money to pay the faculty. He has a lot of land which cannot be sold and which really is draining out taxes. He has a giant horse farm which raises successful trotting horses, but which doesn't make a lot of money. But he has the promise that at a certain point, the entire Stanford fortune will be left to the university. So Stanford University is founded on promises. A money pit. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like a big money pit. <laughs> that's, that's a good enough analogy. Okay. So you are contending that Leland has done all of this essentially on his deathbed based on a dream? I know that's what started it, but did he anticipate this being a legacy or this was really connected to his son more than anything? Both. It's connected with his son, but as um, Charles Elliott, the president of Harvard, says, and he's not alone in saying this, that he considered Stanford University the personal monument for an ill-gotten fortune. It's a way of using it's using um, money, essentially, that's been stolen to commemorate the family. It's not that dissimilar to a lot of donations to a lot of institutions, which you don't want to look really closely at where this money came from. And what it's setting up is a personal monument. Stanford University in its early days is a personal monument to the Stanford family. 
All the big buildings, many of which came down in the earthquake, were monuments to the Stanfords. So they're splitting their time between San Francisco and Palo Alto. Do they move down there permanently before he dies, down to where Stanford is? They still alternate between both houses. After Leland dies, Jane will travel more and more because both houses remind her too much of her dead husband and her dead son. But at the same time, she wants to get her dead husband and her dead son to communicate with them. So Jane, they will spend more time at the Palo Alto Estate founding the university, but they still have this immense mansion. It looks like a small village up on Knob Hill. Does Jane really feel strongly about higher education? This just seems so contradictory to her personality. Was she just going along with Leland or they were a united front with all of this? They felt like they were going to leave behind something good. They're a united front. They believe in education of a certain kind. I mean, Jane Stanford despises elite education. She despises Harvard, Yale, Princeton, in part because they tried to hire presidents of these places, Cornell, um, to be head of Stanford, and they'd failed to do it. They say this is going to be a different kind of university. This is going to be a hands-on university. This is going to be a university for the betterment of humankind. It's going to be a university which is going to teach practical skills. And that's where their fortune is going to go. And she sort of believes in this, but as she gets more and more interested in spiritualism, she begins, and this is after her husband's death, shifts the focus of the university, thinking that they really should be the education of the soul. What they believe is the soul is eternal, and it's educated even after your death. So when you're getting soul education, it begins when you're a human, but after you die, your soul will continue to grow. And so the education should just be a small part of what's going to be a long-standing education. And she says the faculty doesn't seem to recognize the importance of educating the soul. And she is right. The faculty does not recognize the importance of educating the soul. They think they're just giving a normal education for humanities, sciences, and social sciences. So Leland dies in what year? When does he die? And it's just of poor health in general, pneumonia or something like that? 1893, and it's going to be his heart will give out, but a lot of things are giving out. He has gout. I mean, he's a a very sick man. Okay. So if I were Jane and my husband, who was incredibly wealthy and the only source of income in the family had died, I'm not sure I would be that enthusiastic about then turning over more money that could be limited to a university. What is her thinking here? Is she not panicked or is there just so much money left behind that it's okay? She does not know at this stage what the fortune consists of. What she knows is that she owns a one-quarter share in one of the most powerful corporations in America, the Southern Pacific Railroad, and that he is also siphoned off and has a lot of other money. But she has no knowledge of the details of this. She is somebody who on paper, she can look at it and say, oh, Southern Pacific stock, my share of that is going to be $40 million, which is a huge amount of money at the time. But it's only $40 million if you can sell it for $40 million. And in fact, that's not sure at all what that stock is going to be worth. And after his death, there's going to be the panic of 1896, the depression of 1896, and the Southern Pacific Railroad nearly goes bankrupt. Hmm. It appears that not only is Stanford University going to have to close down, but that Jane Stanford is going to lose her entire fortune. And on top of that, the federal government says, wait a minute, 
A lot of this money in the Southern Pacific Railroad came from our subsidies to the Central Pacific Railroad, which was a loan you're supposed to pay back. You have not paid it back. We want our money back. So they sue for that money. So she suddenly realizes she thought she was an immensely rich woman. But in 1896, she realizes she might be on the verge of bankruptcy. Now, Huntington, who was his business partner before he died, right? Right. Does he come into play at all? Is he coming back into her life now that her husband's gone? Yes, because Huntington is panicked that, in fact, the Southern Pacific is going to go under. He will pay Jane a backhanded compliment. He says that she is smarter and manages money better than her husband, but he's thought so little of her husband, it's hard to say what that actually means. Gosh. And what he's trying to do is bully her into ceding control of the Southern Pacific to him, and he wants Stanford University shut down. He says it's simply going to be a drain on the company's assets. We need every dollar we can get to keep this from going under. You have no idea how how bad the situation we're in. So he really tries to bully Jane Stanford, take control of the board of the Southern Pacific, cancel out her vote, stop her from draining any more money out of it. So it turns into a battle between her and Collis P. Huntington. And she turns out to be fairly shrewd, pretty tough, and does not give in to him. But it still looks in 1896-1897 as if they are both going to go down together. They are just passengers on a sinking ship. Tell me about the Panic of 1896, just so that we can have some context. Is this a Wall Street panic, or what ends up happening? It's the kind of panic which afflicts the United States repeatedly in the late 19th and early 20th century. Essentially, what happens is there's boom periods where people borrow a lot of money, invest a lot of money, values, paper values shoot up, and then there's going to be a point where it reaches the top and suddenly people start reneging on loans. Mm-hmm. And once this goes, you begin to get bank runs. Banks start collapsing. They start calling in their loans. As everybody begins calling in their loans, this whole paper pyramid begins to collapse. And the people find that their assets are very often not going to be anything they can make liquid. And so they begin to go bankrupt, too. That's the kind of panic you get. And in 1896, until the Great Depression, was the worst one the United States has ever seen. It throws the United States into a deep recession, a deep depression. And railroads are at the head of it. The major things, railroads tend to overinvest, overexpand. And then when their traffic begins to go down, they can't pay back their loans because they're all operating on borrowed money. And they begin to go under. And that's what's happening in 1896. Okay, so in 1896, does Jane Stanford get over this hump? How does she fare ultimately from the panic? Stanford University and Jane Stanford will have a hard few years. And what they will do is this is the legend of Stanford University. Jane Stanford hawks her jewels, uses the personal allowance she's allowed by the bankruptcy courts to pay the faculty. The faculty takes deep cuts. A lot of people are urging her to shut the university down. She refuses to do so. And when she comes out of it, the way she comes out of it is the depression will begin to end. And then other people will buy the Southern Pacific Railroad to make even larger railroads out of it. And the, suddenly the stock market money she had becomes real money. Oh, she wow. can cash it in. She gets out. And so by the early 1900s, Jane Stanford finds this paper wealth. She's made it through. It's now turned into real liquid wealth, which she either invests elsewhere, keeps in Southern Pacific bonds, or has in cash. And so now it is liquid. Stanford University has real money to get from Jane Stanford. 
So by 1905, Stanford is established as a university, a well-thought-of university on the same echelon as a, a Harvard or a Yale, or no? No, it's a university which is involved in the Edward Ross affair, which is one of the great free speech academic freedom scandals of the 20th century, where James Stanford tries to fire a professor for his political views and does fire a professor for his political views. And he is a formidable professor who makes this a national scandal. That James Stanford is being seen as more and more erratic, somebody who wants to turn the university into a college devoted to teaching these spiritualist truths. Hmm. Jane Stanford, who is going to convert to Catholicism and give the whole university over to the Jesuits. Jane Stanford, who has been a pioneer in admitting women into Stanford, now wants to get rid of all the women in Stanford because they're corrupting what she calls her boys. Stanford University becomes a running joke in much of academia by the early 20th century. A rich running joke, but a running joke. Well, let's talk about the turn from what you said. She had some feminist ideals at first, and then what changed? The best explanation I can give is Jane Stanford begins to have a sexual panic in the early 20th century. I mean, quite literally, sex, just um, she sees sex everywhere. She sees young women flirting with male students, young female students flirting with male students. She is um, alarmed by any hint of sex taking place on campus. She thinks that decorum is breaking down. She thinks Victorian standards are breaking down. Um, she thinks there's a breakdown in morality. And that's why she wants women out. She wants people on horseback, armed guards on horseback, to be riding around campus monitoring the contact between male and female students. She wants to make the age at which women students will be admitted much higher than male students so that you will have 17-year-old boys and 21-year-old women. She just wants reform after reform after reform. And that's the kind of thing which alarms David Starr Jordan. He begins to see that if these reforms go through, the university is not going to be able to survive. So as we approach 1905, when something very bad happens to Jane Stanford, is there a lead up to all of this? Is there some sort of like a trigger or tensions or something that shifts in her world that has her ending up dead? She begins to see David Starr Jordan's opposition to her reforms. And David Starr Jordan's um, refusal to take the blame or failure to take the blame for the firing of Ross and the Ross scandal mm -hmm. is a threat to her. So she's decided to fire David Starr Jordan. And Stanford is such a small place, it's impossible to believe that David Starr Jordan doesn't need. So by December, the gossip is on the street that David Starr Jordan is going to be picked out at the Board of Trustees meetings early in 1905. So first thing that happens is that. And the second thing that happens is around her relationship with her servants, who are pretty much her closest companions by this time, along with her family. And let's say her servants have plenty of reason to hate her, too. Oh. So uh, tensions are building in both the mansion and the downstairs with the servants. And tensions are building with the university where David Starr Jordan thinks he's going to lose his job, a job he desperately wants to keep. But he also thinks if he goes, the university is going to go with him, at least the university as he knows it. Well, we have a near miss and then a direct hit. 
right, with Jane Stanford. Let's talk about the near miss first. What are the circumstances around that? The near miss is that Jane Stanford is doing what she often did. She's going to bed early on a Saturday night. She's planning the next morning to go to Palo Alto to attend church services at the Memorial Church. And she goes to bed early and she always has a bottle of um, Poland Spring bottled water. And what she does is take the water and she tastes funny. She's going to bed and it tastes funny. And she's a maid, Elizabeth Richmond, in the next room. And she spits it out. She says it tastes bitter and brings Elizabeth Richmond in. And Elizabeth Richmond dips her finger in it and says, yes, it does taste funny. And Jane Stanford then begins to vomit. She sticks her finger down her throat and is throwing up in a, a portable sink. And she's de- Elizabeth Richmond bring down her companion and her secretary, Bertha Burner, who's sleeping upstairs. And Bertha Burner also takes a test taste of it, and it's very, very bitter. And they hold it up to the light. And when they hold it up to the light, they see things floating in it. Mm. And the outcome of this is going to be that Jane Stanford purges herself, is very, very sick, but they send the bottle out to a chemist at the bottom of Knob Hill, a pharmacy, to have it tested. And the pharmacy will then send it out to somebody else, to another chemist to have it tested. So they think there's been something put in the water and something has been put in the water, but they don't know what it is. And so for that period, they will go about their normal test. Jane Stanford will set up having a dinner. There's going to be a dinner coming in. It's the height of the social season. So for a week, she has tasted bitter water. Something has happened. She doesn't know what it is. And her life goes forward. You know, if I'm a detective, I'm thinking, who has access to the Poland Springs? How many servants are we talking about, first of all? We're talking about six or seven servants. Some of them have easier access than others. I mean, Bertha Burner has access to her bedroom. Elizabeth Richmond has access to her bedroom. Ah Wing, who's the chief of the Chinese servants, has access to her bedroom. And there are other servants, other maids and other subordinate cooks who might be able to get in, but have less access than these people. So they're the major people who have access to the bedroom. But the problem is that somebody might have put the poison in the bottle someplace else. They might have put it in the kitchen and brought it in. Right. So at this point, they don't have it. But at this point, nobody even knows it's poison. They're not going to know it's poison until it comes back from the chemist. And the chemist report is very, very clear. And the chemist report says there's strychnine in the water. Mm. And it's not just strychnine, it's rat poison. You know, that that indicates to me whoever was doing this, it's not that skilled at poisoning people. You just dump rat poison in it. Well, we talk about that a lot on my other show with Buried Bones with Paul Holes. We talk about that. You have to be skilled as a poisoner because if you don't put in enough, you don't kill the person. If you put in too much, it's detectable and it's a passive way to murder someone. But boy, you really have to know what you're doing. So it sounds like this person wants to try again, whoever the suspect is. How much time elapses before we find out more information? Once they find out the poison's in it, they hire detectives. But the private detectives are going to be Jules Collenden, and his job is to make sure that nobody finds out about the poisoning and also to find out who put the poison in. So for the first three or four weeks, there is an investigation, but it's not by the police. Nothing's reported to the police. It's going to be by a private detective agency, and their job is both to discover the poisoner and to keep this out of the papers. And they do keep it out of the papers for three weeks, but then they make a mistake of antagonizing Elizabeth Richmond, who's friends with an ex-butler, Alfred Beverly. And what they're going to do is go to the papers at the end of January. They're afraid that they are going to be set up. And so Albert Beverly, who's a butler who had left Jane Stanford's service that summer, he 
realizes that he can be implicated because he has been stealing from Jane Stanford. He wants to keep that out of the papers. He's friends with Elizabeth Richmond. He thinks she's being unjustly accused. And he thinks that if his friendship with her is going to get him implicated, so they don't want this going on. They, they think they're safer spilling it to the papers and telling their side of the story. So are the papers on their side when they do reveal all of this? How do they frame it? They frame it as the service did it. I mean, this actually does enter into an Agatha Christie plot. The first Agatha Christie novel, the plot is very much like the poisoning of Jane Stanford. Wow. But the problem I found is once the servants go to the papers, they're all lying. Hmm. Everybody's lying. The detectives are lying. Jane Stanford, when they doesn't say much, what she says is lies. All the servants are lying. So my first problem in looking at all this is everybody's lying. Yeah, it's hard when you have unreliable sources, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So what does Jane say, regardless of if it's a lie or not? She has to be scared. She's terrified. But she doesn't say that she's terrified. She just says that she has the flu, which she does have the flu. She catches the flu. She goes down to San Jose. She stays there. But by the time she comes back up to San Francisco, she is ready to leave the country. She is afraid that's afraid to go back into the house. She's afraid whoever did it is going to try again. And she's decided to go to Asia. And she's writing letters. And she writes letters to Charles Crothers, who's a confidant, who's the youngest of the trustees, been a Stanford undergraduate. And again, this stuff gets really creepy because he looks exactly like her dead son, which is why she trusts him. Mm. So she writes him a letter, which won't be disclosed until 1935, which says, you know why I'm going. I have no idea why people would be trying to kill me. This is not the way I expected to end my life. I have to get out of here. I have to leave because I'm afraid that, in fact, an attempt is going to be made again and I have no way of protecting myself. So she clearly is terrified. Um, When she's in the hotel, she doesn't register under her own name. She won't stay in the mansion. And she brings Bertha Burner, her private secretary, with her to taste all her water and to taste all her food. Is she paying Bertha a lot of money? I'm trying to think of suspects for being a medium. And I know she's her companion also. They have a tricky relationship because the sexual panic that goes to the undergraduate women goes to Bertha Burner. Mm. Bertha Burner is constantly quitting her job with Jane Stanford, very often because Jane Stanford is interfering in Bertha Burner's personal life. Bertha Burner will leave, go out, but she's the only person apparently who can manage Jane Stanford. And so the Stanford family, the Lathrop family, her brother, pay Bertha to come back again Mm. and be a traveling companion. But Bertha, meanwhile, has a mother who is very sick And she is also having an affair with Albert Beverly. The former butler, right? Former butler. And the former butler is embezzling money, and so is Bertha Bernard. Wow. So she is embezzling money also. And that Jane Stanford is putting increasing pressure on Bertha Bernard to travel with her on this trip to Hawaii, a trip to Japan, and another trip she had planned for Europe, even though Bertha Bernard's own mother is sick is dying, and she needs to stay with her mother. So Jane Stanford is essentially telling Bertha Burner, choose, do you come with me or do you stay with your dying mother? So she's putting Bertha Burner in an impossible position. Now, this also must distract her from what's happening at Stanford University. Does this mean that David Starr Jordan is kind of off the hook? I mean, has she forgotten about him and, you know, what's happening at the school? No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No. She wants blood. (laughs) She wants David Starr Jordan. But 
What does help David Starr Jordan is since she's gone and the board of Stanford's trustees is sort of like the modern U.S. Senate. They are really quite old. It's hard to get them all together in one place. And so David Starr Jordan gets some breathing room because Jane Stanford is leaving the country. She won't be there to convene the board of trustees. And many of the board of trustees are old and sick or traveling themselves. So he begins to escape. But eventually there's going to be a quorum. And Jane Stanford is making it very clear to the board of trustees what she wants done when she can get that quorum. So then there is the incident that ends her life. How many years elapse between the first attempt and the one that works? Well, not many years elapsed, not many weeks elapsed, actually. It's about six, it's about six weeks later. Six weeks later, she and Bertha Burner and another maid are on a ship, go to Hawaii, check in at the Moana Hotel. Jane Stanford tells people repeatedly that somebody tried to poison her. That's why she has left San Francisco. She begins to relax a little. She's a tourist. She travels with Bertha Burner. She comes back after a day where they've gone on a picnic. She's tired, goes to her room. She and Bertha Burner have a light supper out on a veranda. Jane Stanford wants to retire early. And Jane Stanford says, because she said she'd eaten a lot of food at the picnic lunch, she said she wants some bicarbonate of soda, which she hadn't been taking, but now she takes some bicarbonate of soda. And she asked Bertha Burner to give her a bicarbonate of soda and also a digestive pill, a kind that contains a tiny amount of strychnine. They actually use strychnine medicinally mm-hmm. in the early 20th century. And Bertha Burner scoops it out. Jane Stanford says, why don't you take some bicarbonate too, since you were there? And Bertha Burner says, no, I don't need it. And Jane Stanford says, well, I'll go to bed. I'll take this before I retire. So she retires, goes to bed. She wakes up the maid a little later because she has trouble locking the door. The maid shows her how to lock the door. She goes to bed. She falls asleep. She apparently forgot to take the bicarbonate of soda. She wakes up in a couple of hours, takes the bicarbonate of soda. And at that point, she begins to feel that she's been poisoned because she has been poisoned. She staggers to the door. She alerts the guy next door. She wakes up Bertha Burner and the maid. They bring down a doctor, a resident doctor in the hotel, who eventually will call for a stomach pump. Jane Stanford is telling people, I have been poisoned. Bertha, tell them what happened in San Francisco. And Bertha Burner says, yes, she'd been poisoned in San Francisco. The doctor, meanwhile, first he's skeptical, but then it begins to look an awful lot like strychnine poisoning. Jane Stanford's having the usual symptoms of strychnine poisoning. She's having trouble opening her jaws. She's having spasms. One of the things strychnine poisoning does is make you aware that you are really dying. Hmm. And Jane Stanford, who's a spiritualist, who imagined death was not a big deal for spiritualism. It was a passing over. Mm -hmm. You just gently pass over into a second life. And Jane Stanford at that point dumps all of the illusions that dying of strychnine poisoning is a gentle passing over. She says that her last words are, this is a terrible death to die. Uh And she dies. She has been poisoned by strychnine, but this time it is not rat poison. It is pure strychnine, which is not easy to obtain. And it's been put in her bicarbonate of soda. The only person present at both poisonings, besides Jane Stanford, is Bertha Burner. So is this not an open and shut case? No, it's not open and shut. (laughs) I don't believe you. How is that possible? (laughs) 
Because the problem is there's the bicarbonate of soda problem. She had not taken any bicarbonate of soda during the whole Hawaiian voyage. The bicarbonate of soda had been packed away in her trunk and then unpacked in Hawaii. So one possibility, it's pretty far-fetched, is somebody put the poison in the bicarbonate of soda before it left San Francisco, figuring whenever she uses it, this is going to take place far away from us. Smart. There's still the potential that she had been poisoned in San Francisco, but it only died in Hawaii. And of course, there's no way to know how long this had been present in the soda or how old it was for them to know whether or not this was something that had been done a week earlier or a couple of weeks earlier. Well, there's one thing that turns out. It turns out the detectives get to work and the detectives get to work trying to find out who had purchased bicarbonate of soda. And um, Bertha Burner denies she knew anything about bicarbonate of soda, anything about strychnine. Bertha Burner says, we always had bicarbonate of soda in San Francisco. I presume this is a bicarbonate of soda from San Francisco. And then it turns out that just before they departed, Bertha Bernard stopped into a pharmacy in Palo Alto and purchased brand new bicarbonate of soda. Hmm. So the bicarbonate of soda could very well have been the bicarbonate of soda that had been purchased by Bertha Burner and had then been taken into Hawaii. So that begins to undercut the theory that the bicarbonate of soda was really going to be coming from San Francisco. It doesn't eliminate it, but it creates the question of why did Bertha Burner lie about purchasing the bicarbonate of soda? So the bicarbonate of soda becomes yet another aspect of the mystery. It's not necessarily open and shut. It still leaves where the strychnine came from, because the hardest thing to find is the strychnine. By pure strychnine, you have to sign for it in San Francisco pharmacies. Right. And there's ways you can get around that, but in fact, it is still a lot more difficult than getting rat poison. That's going to leave a trail, but they can find nobody who has purchased strychnine at all associated with the Stanford household. And the police and the detectives are both on it by now. So they bring her back. There's the autopsy. Is there a large service for her? Is there something at Stanford? And does she leave them all the money or not? This is where things get dicey. This is where? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's dicey already. It gets dicier. (laughs) Nothing is simple about Jane Stanford's death. She's going to have the autopsy. So they bring her back. They bring back her body. But her body, the way they do these autopsies in the 19th century is they basically take out your insides, churn them up, and test them for strychnine. Mm. So Jane Stanford's corpse comes back, but it's a corpse that's largely been emptied of internal organs. And she's going to be buried at a huge ceremony at Stanford University. The student body's there. The faculty is there. Five or 6,000 people show up. They march her to the grave, to the mausoleum, where she is going to join her dead husband and her dead son. Mm -hmm. And the people who are marching behind her on the way to the grave are all the people who were suspects in her death. They're David Starr Jordan. They're Bertha Burner. And it's her servants. They're all coming behind her. So she goes to the grave with the people who might actually have killed her marching behind it. But Stanford University does get the money. George Crothers, who has gone out of his way, he's had to start early. He's had to change the California Constitution to do this. He has um, avoided um, the kind of usual legal procedures to make sure the trusts and wills go through. He has rushed all of these things through. He's taken personal responsibility. He's made sure that Jane Stamper's brother gets enough money that it makes sure this is going to be worth his while to cooperate in um, shutting down any challenge to the wills. The wills will not be challenged. They will be challenged later, but it's going to be too late. The trusts go through. Stanford University gets the money. 
Meanwhile, the police department has decided not to do further investigation. How is that possible? She didn't die of strychnine poisoning. She died a natural death. What David Starr Jordan had done, he'd gone into Hawaii, hired a doctor who had never seen the body, who had never knew anything much about the autopsy. And he said she had died of eating too much food at the picnic lunch, which had given her gas, which had put pressure on her heart, which had given her a heart attack. There's no evidence of a heart attack in the actual autopsy. I mean, essentially, too much gas kills her. David Starr Jordan says he's going to bring this back, give it to the San Francisco police. He gets off the ship. The San Francisco police says there's going to be a full investigation. Within 24 hours, the San Francisco police says, good enough for us. (laughs) And they say she died a natural death. And the whole thing begins to disappear. Some of the newspapers press on it. But the next year, there's going to be the San Francisco earthquake, San Francisco's other things to worry about. And the case disappears. Now, are we thinking that David Starr Jordan did that? as a way to simplify things, let's say he's not the suspect here. Is it so that things could move forward quickly with Stanford or what would be the motive if he weren't the suspect? David Starr Jordan doesn't want a murder. Yeah. Because a murder is going to bring out all of the things that have gone into the funding, that she's a spiritualist, that's going to open up challenges to her wills and her trusts. Okay. He doesn't want that testimony. He certainly doesn't want Bertha Burner, who knows everything, testifying. He also doesn't want a suicide, which is the other theory at the time, because a suicide means in the legal theories at the time that she wasn't mentally competent to have made the trusts and the wills. So that's no. And he wants to save his job. So for David Starr Jordan, the best of all possible worlds is a natural death. And David Starr Jordan gets a natural death. Is Bertha Burner paid off? You know, Bertha Burner is there and... I don't know what conversations are. I can imagine Bertha Burner has already testified that she was poisoned by strychnine. Hmm. She reverses all of her testimony when she talks to this other doctor. Hmm. If I were David Starr Jordan, you know what you tell Bertha Burner is, you know, things don't look that good for you. You're at both murders. Um, You have a reason for wanting to kill her. And if there is no murder, there can be no murderer. And that's pretty convincing. So Bertha Burner reverses everything. She recants all her testimony, but she's not under oath the second time. And the police accept that. How much money are we talking about in the end when Jane Stanford died? How much did the university get? The university, again, it's always hard to say because a lot of it is going to be in what the bonds are worth, how you're going to sell it. But I would say the university probably gets you know, between the old trusts and the new things, 15 to $20 million, maybe a little more than that. It's a lot of money. And it's enough to sustain them, obviously. It's, it makes it the best endowed university in the country, I think, briefly at the time. What is Jane Stanford's whitewashed history at Stanford University? If you take out the spiritualism, just as a founder who was, you know, out of the goodness of her heart and wanted higher education, inspired by her son, is that sort of the narrative? That's the narrative. Leland is engaged in too much sketchy financial stuff. Leland is roundly denounced as a robber baron. Oh. Jane is, seems to be cleaner. And so they erase the spiritualism. That stuff just goes away. They erase the murder. She is a mother whose grief over her son leads her to donate her entire fortune to literally the children of California. She's this beloved figure who founds Stanford University. She's a pioneering feminist who brings in women into the university and assists on their being there. They pretty much erase the complicated Jane Stanford. And more than that, they erase the university's long role 
in denying that there had ever been any murder and that Jane Stanford herself would have probably closed the university down. And they will continue to do this into the 1990s, the early 20th century. And now they don't say that she's murdered. They just don't say anything at all. Nope. So this is not on the new freshman orientation tour. No, 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 no. What do you think now, as I'm talking to Professor White, the historian, why does it matter what the narrative is? If you've got this incredible school because of this woman, absolutely, why does it matter that this is not the true narrative that has been put forward by the school for all of these years? That's a very good question. It's one I thought about a lot. And it matters because to make sure that Stanford's money went to something that would later turn into a major research university, which doesn't happen for years later, first you had to kill Jane Stanford. Hmm. The real theme of this book is the problem with philanthropy is philanthropists. Hmm. If Jane Stanford got what she wanted, Stanford University would not be a major research university. Stanford University would be a peculiar small college with some esoteric spiritualist beliefs that might have faded in time. Hmm. What seems to me this bizarre case in the early 20th century, like bizarre cases everywhere, they really open up something quite deeper. And they really open up the problem with private fortunes, great wealth, philanthropy, getting to dictate the directions of institutions, which sometimes go way off track and end up, as they do here, with the murder of Jane Stanford. And, you know, we haven't told the whole story anyway, because there still is the question of where the pure strychnine came from. And what do you think, without giving away too much? I have a suspicion, and I think the police knew who killed Jane Stanford. And the police decided that that person would disappear and that that aspect of the case would be dropped. At first, I thought the San Francisco police were incredibly corrupt and incredibly incompetent. Now I just think they were incredibly corrupt. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.